This episode of New Politics was released on the 28th of January, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, News Corporation decides to hate yet another female Prime Minister, the media attacks on the Prime Minister in Alice Springs, and we look at the latest opinion polls. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Australian of the Year in our hearts. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Over in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern has resigned as Prime Minister after five and a half years in office. She was able to form government in 2017 and then went on to win the 2020 election in a landslide victory and won a majority of seats for the Labor Party for the first time ever in New Zealand's electoral system. And that's a very difficult thing to achieve. She was one of the few leaders to manage the coronavirus pandemic effectively. The New Zealand economy has performed well over the past five years, but just as there is in Australia, there are high cost of living issues. Housing prices are high, as is inflation, but generally she's been a highly successful Prime Minister. Now, normally the Australian media stays away from New Zealand politics, but News Corporation has been having a field day since Jacinda Ardern announced her resignation, saying that all of her instincts were bad, she shut down the engines of economic growth, she was a flop, she was a dreadful Prime Minister who failed, her legacy was no bed of roses, she was vacuous, Queen of Woke leaving her trail of chaos behind. And these are some of the better comments that they made. Now, all of these comments and negative articles were all made by male journalists at news corporations, so it continues their long tradition of sexism and misogyny. They attacked New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark when she left office in 2008 in pretty much the same way. We had those three long, hard years of sexism and misogyny from News Corporation, directed at former Prime Minister Julia Gillard. And if you connect all of the dots... Jacinda Ardern, Helen Clark, Julia Gillard. They were all successful politicians. They were all from the left. They were from a political party which represents unions and workers. And the big factor is that they are all women. And that's the big issue that News Corporation just doesn't seem to be able to handle very well. I think the lasting image of Jacinda Ardern was her putting on a hijab and embracing the people who'd been affected by the terrible, terrible shooting in the mosque. It showed compassion. It showed inclusivity. It showed democracy in a way. These were New Zealand citizens for the most part or wanting to become New Zealand citizens. And she walked in humble and heartbroken and showed the world how a leader behaves in such a tragedy. Now, she wasn't the only world leader ever to act compassionately and humanely in a a crisis. Many, many others had done that. But this was a fairly unprecedented thing in New Zealand. And for her to adopt the clothing customs of the mosque, 
was, uh, I think, a real show that she was serious about making sure that the people affected were part of her constituency, that they weren't going to be tossed aside like other governments may have done. She was very well regarded on the world stage. And she's not dead, by the way. (laughs) I'm talking about her prime ministership. (laughs) She had a, a certain everyday quality about her that is usually praised in male politicians. But from the feral Australian right, none of whom I think are New Zealanders. I saw that Channel 9 interviewed Winston Peters, who heads up the right wing New Zealand First Party. And there was no surprises in that. She was a failure. She went because she was finished. She was a disaster for New Zealand. They didn't get in any of her cabinet to maybe say, well, these are the achievements of our government. They certainly didn't interview her, and I think that she was open to interviews. So the Australian right is terrified of another left-wing, progressive, young female. It's quite sad, really. And it also seems like it doesn't really matter where that progressive centre-left politician comes from, whether it's New Zealand or Finland or Australia, they don't care where they come from. And this was all another bonanza for news corporations as well. It was mainly coming from the Australian newspaper, which seems to be a retirement village for decrepit old male journalists of a conservative persuasion. And they never miss an opportunity to attack successful women, irrespective of which field they're in. They attack Christine Holgate, the former head of Australia Post, liberal women who didn't perform up to their expectations. The member for Bass, Bridget Archer, she was castigated by a news corporation when she crossed the floor last year. Julia Banks, when she resigned from the Liberal Party, women such as Brittany Higgins. Now, once you cross the Liberal Party, or if you don't fit into their ideological agenda, well, News Corporation comes after you. And of course, this is all headed up by Rupert Murdoch. And for Rupert Murdoch, the only women that he seems to want to see are the ones that appear just after he's taken a Viagra pill. But There's an entire collection of these people at News Corporation, Greg Sheridan, Dennis Shanahan, Andrew Bolt, Paul Murray. They're vile, they're sexist and they're abusive. And that's not to suggest that other media is a haven of fairness and integrity. Most of the entire industry is vile, sexist and abusive. And we're actually part of that industry, David. But most of them seem to exist at News Corporation for some reason. You will get the odd Fairfax article that will examine this stuff. And sometimes they're very good, sometimes they're not very good, but you will get the odd Fairfax and Channel 9 report that looks at how bad this is as a whole for society and how it reflects on society. You'll get it in The Guardian, maybe maybe a little bit more, but generally powerful women tend to get attacked. Now, of course, power should be held to account. And I'm sure that there were things that the Ardern government did that didn't come off as well as they might have, that weren't finished, that seemed like a good idea at the start and turned into a bad idea at the finish, and they should be called out. Same with the Albanese government and every other government in the world. But we don't start from the assumption that none of it can be good because she's a woman. She's clearly a very capable woman. It's odd to say this about a national leader, but she has a future in front of her too, I think. I don't think her career is necessarily finished. I think being prime minister can be a terribly difficult job if you take it seriously. 
And she said she's got nothing left in the tank. It's unusual for a politician to admit that. It has happened here. Western Australian Premier Jeff Gallup admitted that. Bob Carr admitted that. Now, we've got to be careful in New South Wales because often there's something else bubbling under the surface. (laughs) But it does happen. It's very rare. And actually, my favourite comedic take was, I can't remember if it was the shovel or the chaser who reported on Australians being flabbergasted at a leader who wasn't going to sit on the back bench and white-hand the party. (laughs) She stepped down. She's not standing at the election. She's making a clean break for it all. I suspect she'll go into either not-for-profit work, maybe work for the United Nations or or something like that. It doesn't matter, but it it is a contrast to other ex-prime ministers we might name, but we won't, who hang around and aren't there for the good of the party or the country who are just there because they don't know what else to do. And I think all of this has been an excellent example of just how News Corporation operates. When something doesn't fit into their particular agenda, they just make things up and they do it every time for centre-left political parties. Now, they've made that big claim that Jacinda Ardern presided over a terrible economy and left it behind in shambles, but the statistics actually tell a different story. The New Zealand economy is the third best growing economy in the world. They've got a growth rate of 6.4%. That's just slightly ahead of Australia's economy. And that's compared to the OECD average of just 3%. The jobless rate is 3.4%. That's the fourth lowest in the OECD. Inflation is at 7.4% and the OECD average is 11.6%. And they keep saying that it's a terrible economy, but it is one of the best performing economies in the world. Now, Having said all of that, no politician is perfect. Ardern's Labor Party is actually trailing in the polls at the moment, so her gloss has steadily worn off um, over the past year, and quite often politicians might be viewed more favourably to an overseas audience, but it ends up being quite different domestically. And we have to remember that Mikhail Gorbachev was very popular internationally, but he was loathed and hated during the end of his time as president of the Soviet Union. Jacinda Ardern didn't actually get to that stage, so we do have to take all of these factors into account. But a political leader, they're neither 100% good or 100% bad. But in the case of Jacinda Ardern, News Corporation thinks that she's 100% bad. So that's not really analysis. It's not reporting. It's just ideologically based misogyny backed up by false reporting. I wonder how much of it too is a reaction that their own people have been duds. So they're trying to say, oh, look, what you might call whataboutism. Except, again, facts, as the writer so often prone to tell you, facts don't care about your feelings. And then they quote facts at you that are either wrong or false or, or non-existent. In this case, facts don't care that you don't like Jacinda Ardern. And it's perfectly fine to not like the Ardern policies, by the way, if you have an argument about it. But she comes to the end of her time, having left New Zealand in a better place. And even good prime ministers or even good national leaders, that always doesn't happen. Circumstances beyond their control come in and they leave at the cusp of a recession or something changes and there's something that's just out of their reach or something that they hadn't anticipated comes along and good prime ministers go in disgrace. Ardern's managed to get out before there's a crash. She's managed to get out at a really good time, handing it over to her successor, a country in good stead. They are likely to lose the next election as far as I can tell, and the multi-member representation 
of New Zealand with no upper house makes it hard to predict, which is why her victory was so astounding that she was able to get a majority in a system that's designed to not have majority, in a system is designed to try and get everybody working together. So that she was able to do that was remarkable, and I think she will be remembered for a long time, not just in New Zealand, but internationally. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. I don't pretend to know the ways of the world. A means to an end seems the way. Who has the most of whatever is best? All the better. May the best man win. An eye for an eye is a blind man's rule. I wasn't born to follow. I'm nobody's fool. Any other man can soon unsolve. Truth is seldom found when a woman is around. Prime Minister has visited Alice Springs in response to rising crime rates in the town and, as usual, the media decided that Anthony Albanese was terrible for not going to Alice Springs and then when he did go, he was also terrible for doing that as well. And I think it's sometimes best for political leaders just to ignore the media and do what's right rather than trying to appease them because they just can't (laughs) seem to decide what's right or wrong. But just for some context, Peter Dutton has been railing against the voice of Parliament for several months, asking for more details when all the details are actually out there. He ramps up every conceivable problem in the Indigenous community and then asks how the voice is going to fix this. And during the week, Peter Dutton was also in Alice Springs highlighting all the crime problems in the city and calling on the government to send in the Defence Force as if that was going to make any difference. And When Peter Dutton speaks, the media always obliges. Now, the media has claimed that Albanese is buckled to pressure, even though he was planning to make the trip in December, but was afflicted with COVID. Then he rescheduled the trip just over a week ago, and that was before Peter Dutton ramped up his fake outrage, and he was also criticised for failing to address a major problem in a regional town. Now, there's no doubt that crime is a problem in Alice Springs, but most of the rise in crime rates occurred before Albanese became Prime Minister, and crime and policing is a matter for the states and territories, not the federal government. And if only political reporters understood politics a little bit more and reported information accurately, instead of always siding with the likes of someone like Peter Dutton, who just seeks division and trouble at every opportunity, I think we'd all be better off. Dutton's solution was to send the army in. Now, again, the army can do very good short-term building, but the problem here isn't about logistics. 
it's social issues that require much more subtle and nuanced and long-term approaches. It's education. It's social work solutions. It's not sending in the army to enforce curfews and to build bridges. And, to, and again, I'm not trying to disparage individual soldiers here. Organizations have their skills. And as we saw with the last time they did the intervention, their skills aren't in improving race relations in that kind of way. So Dutton has shown that he's incapable of subtle thought, again shows that he's racist. How many times has he been to Alice Springs? How many Indigenous leaders outside of the ones on his own side of politics has he spoken to? And how much is he using them for political gain rather than building meaningful working experiences. The stench of racism has followed Dutton round. He walks out of the national apology. He never seems to suggest anything positive, progressive or constructive for Indigenous affairs. He keeps arguing about details on the voice. He knows nothing about it, despite the fact that one of the authors of one of the reports going into it was Ken Wyatt his own member, who is a leading Indigenous figure. And I bet he hasn't spoken to Ken Wyatt since Ken Wyatt lost his seat. Australia, I think, may have progressed past the point where this racist dog whistling will work anymore. And again, I'm not saying, yay, we fixed racism. There's still a long way to go. But it's getting less acceptable, even in a subtle and disguised way, from our national leaders. Dutton is yesterday's man. Oh, well, I guess Peter Dunton might be yesterday's man, but he's actually here today, and that's probably one of the problems. Yeah. But this is how the media frames their agenda against Anthony Albanese, and this is not a new tactic. They've pretty much done this since Albanese became the leader of the Labor Party back in 2019. They highlight all of Dutton's negativity and then imply that Albanese is so hopeless and out of touch that he only responds when the opposition and the media raises all of these issues. Now, as much as the media and the Liberal Party opposition think that it's more important than the government, this is not actually how government works. And sure, sometimes they do react when a problem is highlighted in the media and then become engaged in political management on that particular issue. But Albanese was planning to go to Alice Springs in December. He couldn't because he had COVID. So the trip to address these issues was rescheduled for... January. So Albanese was always planning to go to Alice Springs, but this has been some confected outrage implemented by Peter Dutton. He was in government for nine years. He never said a word about these issues in Alice Springs, but now that he's had a chance to create division and seek a political opportunity, this is when he starts dictating what the government should do. It's very easy for the Prime Minister to demonstrate, yes, we already had these plans. Yet the press is sort of pushing, oh, yeah, Dutton forced him to go. Peter Dutton is back from the dead. Yeah, he's not really. Now, I should footnote here, and this is something that we might get into in some more depth in a later podcast. Anthony Albanese's diary had a freedom of information claim put on it about a meeting he had with or a barbecue he had and the FOI was knocked back. Rex Patrick did that. So the Prime Minister's got to be careful that he doesn't start to fall into the same types of tricks and traps that the last Prime Minister fell into. He's got a lot of political goodwill and you've got to be careful what you burn that on and secrecy and seeming to do the same thing as the other side will burn that a lot quicker than unpopular economic decisions for example. Having said that, that he went to Alice Springs 
was a good thing. It's not the only town, by the way, that has these problems. I don't know why Alice Springs is more prominent than Walgett in New South Wales, Sejuna in South Australia. There's about 12 towns in Queensland. But I guess it's that symbolic. This is the heart of, the, of Australia, the literal heart. It's right in the middle of the, the continent. And it's easy for people to pretend to have an emotional connection with that place, even if they've never been, than it is to mention somewhere that's four hours west of Burke, which is seven hours west of Dubbo, which is six hours west of Sydney. <laughs> so it's a difficult situation, no question. I don't know quite what the solution is, except I do know that it's more than just banning alcohol. It's more than just having curfews. It's more than just arresting people left, right and centre for crimes real and imagined. They've got to start thinking generationally and bringing in long-term solutions to help not only this generation of Indigenous people, but the next ones too. Long-term viable solutions are important. There's also been some suggestions that Peter Dutton is a better campaigner and gets his message across more effectively than when Albanese was in opposition, and that's not actually the case. Dutton has got a massive advantage in media management in that he gets huge favours from news editors and media proprietors, and it's not like Albanese's media team sat around and did nothing during their time in opposition. They were actually shunned by the media. We never used to see Albanese because the media didn't want to engage with him, and You could argue, well, it's up to a political party to get around those barriers, but if those media proprietors have got an ideological opposition to a particular leader, well, they're just not going to engage with them. And they love Peter Dutton and dislike Anthony Albanese, and it really is as simple as that. And that's why we're seeing so much of Peter Dutton in the media, because the media loves a conflict. He's their man, and we're probably going to see a lot more of him, and we're going to see a lot more of this framing of Dutton supposedly directing the agenda, and we're going to see... More of these types of media messages where Anthony Albanese was supposedly pressured by the opposition to go to places like Alice Springs, even though he was always planning to be in Alice Springs at this time, and he was going to go there to address these issues. And this is in stark contrast to the previous Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, when he went to Alice Springs in February 2022, just under a year ago. Now, Morrison always miraculously seemed to be just doing his job. He was never pressured by the opposition or by the media. And in February 2022, Morrison was told so many times to go to Alice Springs by the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese at the time, by the local community as well, by Indigenous elders. And that's the time when the crime rate actually spiked in the town. Now, initially, Scott Morrison refused to go, but then he arrived at the last minute, announced a $14 million package to fight crime and... Then he left. Now, that $14 million never actually made it to Alice Springs. And just like many other things performed by Scott Morrison, it was just another announcement. They're very good at announcing. And as we've seen over the last nine years, they're not very good at delivering. Again, the problems are such that these simplistic measures are doomed to fail. And I guess that's why. And if if only there was some kind of body made up of Indigenous people that could represent Indigenous ideas and Indigenous issues to the parliament. David, could I suggest possibly the voice to parliament? Uh, We'll have to look into that, won't we? We know that the, the voice isn't perfect, but it's going to be better than any solution that's going to come up except for possibly a treaty. And I think a treaty is another, sadly, another 10 or 15 years before that could happen, unless there was a voice to parliament which could push harder for it. So we can see the 
essentially Peter Dutton has got no real interest in resolving the issues in Alice Springs and he's in opposition, he's not, he's not actually in government so it's not up to him so it's the perfect opportunity to make announcement after announcement and not actually being forced to deliver because that's not his job. But he did nothing about it while he was in government. But leadership and the role of government is to resolve problems, irrespective of who created and contributed to the problem. Mm. Between 2021 and 2022, incidents of assault in Alice Springs rose by 43%. Domestic violence rose by 53%. Property damage went up by 60%. And that continued to rise after July 2022. Now, Anthony Albanese does have to take responsibility for fixing these issues, but to give him the blame for all of this is a bit rich. And Peter Dutton has also suggested that Labor removing the cashless debit card program has caused all of these problems, even though the crime rate spiked during the time the card program was still in existence. So as a result of all of this, the Labor government has provided $14 million in support, and that's the amount that Morrison promised but never actually provided. And there's also an alcohol curfew that has been implemented as well. So all of these problems do have to be resolved, but it's just frustrating that all of the actions that contributed to these problems in Alice Springs, and I'm not suggesting that it's the only factor, a lot of these were caused by the previous coalition governments, such as removing $500 million from Indigenous frontline services as one of their first acts of government in 2013. And all of these acts seem to have been forgotten about as though it's got absolutely nothing to do with the problems that exist today. Yeah. Again, using a very sad, very complex and very tragic situation to gain political points, to try and get that dog-whistling racism, and sometimes not even a dog-whistle, back onto the public agenda to push votes their way. And it's, it's really disgraceful. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. There's a wide range of opinion polls being published at the moment, including federal voting intentions, perceptions about the voice of parliament and what people think about Australia Day. And there's a poll from Resolve about the voice of parliament and that suggests that 60% of people would vote yes if the referendum was held this weekend and 40% would vote no. And the yes vote is actually down from 64% in September last year, but overall it's still at the level of support required for the referendum to succeed. And the political voting intentions, they've got an interesting dynamic where support for the coalition has actually gone backwards. In the Resolve poll, the Labor estimated two-party preferred vote is 60.5% and for the Liberal National Coalition, it's 39.5%. The Morgan poll is similar. It's 59.5% for the Labor Party and 41.5% for the LNP. And 
Peter Dutton's support has slipped further behind. It was already pretty low, but it's actually dropped even further. Now, an unpopular opposition leader is leading a campaign against the voice. Now, they're not officially saying no at the moment, but it's an unofficial campaign to force a no vote for the voice to Parliament. Dutton might be getting some traction, and we can see what his political strategy is, but it's entirely negative, and I think it might be counterproductive. He's not Tony Abbott. He's certainly not John Howard. He's just Peter Dutton. It could be, I've said this before, it could be that this is the first referendum that passes without official bipartisan support. I think it's going to be the Greens. Lydia Thorpe has spoken against The Voice and is not sure whether it's worth pursuing. Thinking, and her argument is, till there's a treaty in place, nobody can be trusted. I would argue that you can't trust the treaties either. But it's not an invalid argument, I I will be fair. I think a treaty would take much longer, and I think that a treaty through the voice would be quicker. I don't want to say that there's a gubba telling black people what to do, by the way. I'm just looking at it from a political and procedural point of view. It's certainly a more valid argument than, oh, we don't have enough details apart from the dozens of articles and hundreds-page reports and... And so the Greens are working out whether they'll support it. I suspect that if the Liberal Party doesn't support it and the Greens don't support it, that will create a big enough wedge. And I've noticed it's the newspapers. Dutton has failed in his attempt to wedge, but the newspapers are pushing this notion a bit more, that there's this division in Indigenous voices, some saying that we need a treaty first, others saying uh, we need the voice, and then others saying that the voice isn't going to do any good, and that's pointing at people like uh, Lydia Thorpe and Warren Mundine. It may be that, that that shows the failure of the referendum to get up. I suspect the Greens are having all kinds of existential crises at the moment as they try and work out what's the best way to go. That's a matter for them, of course. But It's going to be interesting. Again, the voice was put through after discussions with hundreds of Indigenous leaders and communities. So these other views do seem to be minority views. And there is some despair about Peter Dutton's strategy that all of this will derail the the yes vote. And but my feeling is that he's so thoroughly unlikable and negative that it might not work at all. And there's always that situation that because we follow the media and political reporting so closely that we might actually be missing what's happening out there in the community and this could end up being a repeat of what happened during the federal election and Victoria election in 2022 where the media played the role of the horse race commentator and the contest seemed a lot closer than it actually was and the other issue is that the guy who's doing his best to destroy the voice of parliament is actually quite unpopular, as is the party that he leads. And he might be appealing to the people who were going to vote no anyway and are supportive of his style of leadership. So in a political marketing sense, it's almost like Peter Dutton is not the right leader for a no campaign, if that's what they wanted to achieve. And there's also been questions on social media about whether Peter Dutton is a racist leader, and you referred to this before, David, and it's not for me to say, of course, and also I don't want to be facing a defamation case, but 
Peter Dutton did walk out of the apology to the Solon generation back in 2008. He laughed about rising sea levels for Pacific Island communities. He ramped up all that African gangs rhetoric in Melbourne. He said that rape victims in Manus Island and Nauru were just trying it on, supposedly. He refused to grant visas to the Murugupan family, while at the same time he was suggesting that there should be strong consideration for white farmers in Zimbabwe. And the constant factor here is skin colour. Now, I'm not going to say anything else, but I think the evidence can speak for itself. You have to be very careful. As a political leader, you have to be very careful what you say because things can be taken out of context and that defines the rest of your political career. Again, the things he has opposed has tended to focus on people of a different skin colour. Now, this, of course, could be coincidental. The whole Melbourne gangs thing was totally undermined by his own side when Christopher Pine realised halfway through an interview he was supposed to be complaining about hordes of African gangs, having just reported to the journalist that he'd been out and had a lovely night to dinner, <laughs> which, of course, he wasn't supposed to be able to do. That pretty much killed the whole African gangs of ruining Melbourne. And yet what a Queensland politician is doing talking about problems in Melbourne is a whole other thing. And Chris Pine, in, in any case, was from South Australia. So I guess the further you are away from the problem, the more you can see it, I suppose. Whether Dutton is or is not a racist is beside the point. There's a large percentage of the voting public that sees him as having racist ideas, even if he's not fully a racist. And that is problematic for a leader in a modern multicultural society. It, again, shows the depths to which the Liberal Party has fallen, that he's the best that they could come up with. Yeah, I hope that the party reforms and starts from a more ethical and moral basis rather than the win-at-all-cost that we've had since 1996, definitely. But it will destroy the party far more than the, the normal decline of standards. And there was yet another poll about Australia Day, and it's that time of the year again, David. I'm getting a little bit sick of all this, but this year it does seem to be a little bit more quiet than it usually is, and that's probably because we haven't got a jingoistic conservative federal government that engages in culture wars. And it was almost like January the 26th over the past nine years that was like the starters gun in yet another episode of the culture war but the most recent poll and this one was produced by essential poll and according to essential 26 percent support holding australia day on a completely different day 33 percent suggest holding another day to recognize indigenous people but actually keeping australia day where it is 33 percent are suggesting no change at all and I'd say that probably 100% would say yes to an end of those stupid cultural war games. But the dynamics of Australia Day is definitely changing. There's less councils that are holding their citizenship ceremonies on January the 26th. Corporate Australia is responding as well. Kmart decided not to sell Australia Day merchandise, much of the chagrin of Sky News. Cricket Australia no longer calls the game played on January the 26th as Australia Day match. The federal government also amended public service rules so people could work on the 26th if that's what they wanted to do, as was the case before 1994. And we have to remember that Australia is the only country in the world that celebrates colonisation of country and dispossession of Indigenous people, and opponents of Australia Day rightly refer to it as Invasion Day. But 
the change to Australia Day might end up happening fairly quickly because I think the more people get to understand what the day is all about, the more they are turned off by it and the more they can see how inappropriate the day actually is. There's a lack of understanding of the history of Australia, but certainly 26% wanting a change means, what, 74% want to keep it the same way. Now, there are immigrant families who find it a very important day because it represents the day they became citizens, it represents a country that they've come to and loved, etc., etc. So it, it's not quite as simple Taking out the Anglo tradition of this is Australia Day, taking that out, there is still certain positivities about it. I say that very carefully because the negatives are extremely negative and I'm probably within that 26% of people who think that the day should change. There's other days that it could be celebrated. I note that people outside of New South Wales who are very proud of their state have started to arc up about it being foundation day in new south wales and then having no relevance to the rest of the country that's not unfair either you might argue that without sydney none of the rest of the places would exist and that the colonies start here and then spreads out but i say that very gingerly and carefully too because i don't want to disparage the notion that it's not relevant to people outside of new south wales but then we could have another national day on a more on a more appropriate date the day of the apology the day of the Commonwealth referendum in 1967. There's all kinds of days that might work better. It's funny too, the big proponents of free speech hate it when corporations come out and exercise their right to free speech and free trade in ways that they don't approve of. Kmart deciding not to sell Australia Day merchandise would not have come quickly, it would not have been bowing to pressure from the left. There would have been a whole range of research done. There would have been a whole range of costings done. There would have been a whole range of how how does this affect our positive image in a good way, in a bad way? Do we keep it? And so they decide for, I suspect, many reasons, ultimately the profit margin, that they're not going to promote this jingoistic, cheap, Chinese-made Australian flag stuff anymore. And that's perfectly within their rights, as it was perfectly within their rights to sell it and stack their shelves and promote it. If they decided not to do it, that's their decision, that's their right. And unless you can come up with a reason that they could do it where they'd still make money, for example, they've got the perfect right to do so. So I wonder what the future of Australia Day will be. Is there enough support to keep it at the end of January, which gives a nice bookend to the end of Christmas, admittedly? Or is there an argument to move it to later in the year, where it can be maybe a bit more inclusive to people who are deeply and genuinely hurt by the concept? That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.